It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week we got a much clearer idea of how and when Britain plans to leave the EU with the announcement by Prime Minister Theresa May that formal notice to quit the EU will be issued early next year triggering a two-year negotiation process, at the end of which Britain is out. To discuss the implications of all that, I'm joined by Dan Dombey, who is the FT's Brexit editor. Yes, we have one. And on the line from Brussels is our bureau chief, Alex Barker. Dan, it sounds like, in a way, not much to say, yeah, we'll, we'll trigger talks next March by the latest. But in a sense, Theresa May has now confirmed that Britain really is leaving the EU and will be out before the next general election in Britain, which might have offered some kind of opportunity to have a rethink. There may have been some denialists out there still. There certainly were some in the days and weeks in the immediate aftermath of the June 23rd referendum who thought this wasn't really going to happen. And now, for all intents and purposes, we have triggered Article 50 because the most important thing was to have a date certain by which we were going to be out of EU, and we now more or less have that. We know that unless anything very much changes, we're out of EU by the 1st of April 2019. But it's not all just process and timelines. I think we've got a lot of substance as well. The mood music in the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham, and some of the announcements as well, indicated very much that we were headed towards what people call a hard Brexit, in which we were very unlikely to be part of a single market, and perhaps our ties to the EU would be much less than Many of the 48% who voted to remain and perhaps some of the 52% who voted to leave wanted. And is that because Theresa May is prioritising controlling immigration and that once she does that and it ends free movement of people, as far as we understand it, the EU is not going to accept us being in the internal market. So we have to look for some kind of free trade arrangement of the sort that Canada signed. At root, I think that is the issue. I mean, uh, Angela Merkel has, uh, who, of course, many people have been looking to to, in some sense, fight Britain's corner, given uh, German industry's interest in, in the UK and the UK economy. Angela Merkel has made clear yet again her position that the EU is a package deal and access to the EU and participation in the EU's single market is a package deal. And that if you interfere or restrict freedom of movement, then you don't get to be in it. But I think it goes beyond that. I mean, we also saw a very anti-immigrant line. It's one thing to insist on some measure of sovereignty over who comes into the country. It's another to come out with these ideas, uh, as Home Secretary Amber Rudd did, that we're going to name and shame companies in terms of a proportion of foreign nationals they employ. So we had that from the Conservative Party conference, which I'm not sure is going to win many sympathies in continental Europe. And we had statements such as the one made by Theresa May that uh, as of the moment we're out, the authority of EU law in the UK is over. Well, that's very substantive, because if there isn't some kind of higher tribunal determining our relations with the rest of the EU, it's not just a question of doubt whether we're going to be in the single market or participate meaningfully in it. It's even a doubt whether we're going to be able to negotiate a transitional deal to smooth the way to the trade deal that could be years and years in reaching. Alex, this whole question of the transitional deal is one that I'd heard a lot of from civil servants and wrote about this week in my column because what they had said to me is that 
there's no way we'll nail down the new relationship between Britain and the EU over the course of two years. Therefore, it's critical that we have a transitional deal. Otherwise, Britain could, in two years' time, face tariffs on manufactured goods, be out of the financial services passporting area. Yet it seems that May has not got this transitional deal. And therefore, are we as vulnerable as I and others seem to think? It's certainly the case that she has given up some of the bargaining power she potentially may have used in this process to extract concessions like assurances on the transition. There are some in who would have seen this as uh, the best way to go about the negotiation. The EU side are tremendously relieved that she's called this date because they won't have Britain messing with the rules, playing with their own concerns about how long Brexit will take and whether it will be dragged out uh, to um, press them for, for concessions like a transition. It's a big deal in terms of tactics. In terms of strategy as well, the EU side, if you go to Paris and Berlin, there's puzzlement that Theresa May has been quite clear about her conditions, and it's quite clear for them that that means she wants to be outside the single market. It's an easier question for them to deal with because part of the problem they have is making clear that leaving the EU has consequences, that it's a very different world out there, and they were more worried that Britain would play with the EU's rules and then try and change the single market to fit its own needs. The idea of an arm's-length trade deal, in a funny way, it's easier for them to pull together and to cast as something very different. And what do you think is the mood in Brussels and elsewhere? You mentioned Berlin and Paris, because a lot of the um, pre-referendum talk among those arguing for a leave in the UK was that, well, you know, in the end, the EU quite quickly will become realistic. They'll see it's in their interest to have a good deal with Britain and they'll strike that deal. It sounds like, though, that the political considerations on the European side about wanting to maintain the integrity of the EU are probably more powerful than some of the economic considerations about, well, it would be nice to have a decent trade deal with Britain. They certainly are more powerful at the moment. You've got to remember, though, a lot of the countries are still kind of feeling their way through this process and doing the kind of ledger on what their interests may be. And we might not see those full kind of national interests play out until much later stage in the process. And for the moment in Berlin in particular, and some other member states, the political message they're sending is far stronger. There was a very interesting meeting at the Chancery last week where, you know, there were 20-odd executives from the top European companies were invited for a dinner with um, Chancellor Merkel and Francois Hollande, the French president, and Jean-Claude Juncker. And uh, one of the chief executives said, you know, well, uh, I've been lobbied by the, the British to say that it's very important that we maintain economic ties and that we try and keep some of the benefits of the single market, even if they're leaving the EU. And the response from Francois Hollande may be something predictable. He said, you know, the single market principles are paramount. More interesting was the Chancellor Merkel's response. And she said, you know, I wavered on this. I wasn't sure, but I'm now convinced there's only one way. Francois Hollande is right. If we don't hold up the principles of the single market, then the entire EU project is at risk. And uh, it was a very clear message to these executives. And that idea that ultimately 
and the businessman would come knocking at the door of German and French politicians and say, look, you've got to cut a realistic deal. For the moment, the message is more political than it is kind of economic. It's very interesting because if you look at it, domestic politics, diplomacy and the process are all conspiring to point us in a certain direction at the moment, it seems. The Labour Party is in chaos. The Cameroons within the Conservative Party are in disarray. And so there is no force in domestic politics that's pushing even for a soft Brexit meaningfully. And instead, we've seen, you know, Mrs May sound pretty hard Brexit, although she rejects the use of those terms in her address to the Tory party in Birmingham, which obviously is a message that goes well beyond Birmingham. So the domestic politics points that way. Alex has pointed out how the international politics is pointing towards hard Brexit. And of course, the process, because soft Brexit is neither fish nor fowl, it's something made up that doesn't yet exist, it's something customised is much simpler if we're out clean and hard breaks. So those three things point in the same direction. But of course, what that analysis entirely lacks is what that means for Britain, what that means for the British economy, what that means for British academia, what that means for Britain's interests. You could almost say that we're pointing in a direction even before we've done this full reckoning of what's in UK's greatest interest. Well, it does seem extraordinary because Mrs May came in with this reputation as being a very cautious, pragmatic person. And yet, as you say, we seem to be heading for what she doesn't want to call, but everybody else calls, hard Brexit. That does have quite profound economic implications. I mean, tariffs and big damage to the City of London, which contributes, what, something like 10% of Britain's tax revenues, sounds reckless. Well, you have to look at the British economy as a whole. The City of London has reinvented itself in the past. It may reinvent itself in the future as an offshore centre and so on. We're enormously sensitive to that. I think we get 25% of our income tax take from the top 1%. So those high city earners, and not not to mention corporate taxation, are tremendously important. When you look at manufacturing industry, there are sectors that are enormously exposed, principally the car industry, which employs directly and indirectly something like 800,000 people, and where car components can shuttle between here and continental Europe a number of times. Car companies have said that they face a double whammy both on export duties, because they often export 70 to 80% of their models to Europe, with only 12% in the UK, and on the import of those parts. And they have a very short life cycle, so they're making investment decisions, major investment decisions, in the next few months and years. That said, on the other end of the spectrum, you have something like the aerospace industry, which is much less affected because of a much longer investment timeline. And then you have the 70 to 80% of the British economy that is services. So it's a very variegated effect across the British economy. And you could argue that a short, sharp Brexit at least gives us clarity earlier. What is hard to argue, however, right now, is that the decisions that are being made are being made after a clear, open, comprehensive and transparent process of consultation and assessment of the British economy. It's hard to make that case. Alex, we could talk all day about this, but unfortunately we don't have all day. But just to have a last uh, look at where things stand, I mean, I guess it is a little worrying from the point of view of the British economy, and we have had more clarity this week. On the other hand, we have to remind ourselves that this is still at the beginning of a very long process, and there's a lot of economics and politics to come with the French and German elections next year. Oh, absolutely. And I think it was an important moment in defining the kind of parameters for this discussion. But this really isn't going to come to a head politically for a very long time, possibly early 2018. If you think through what they've got to do for the rest of this year, most of the EU 27 will be running the numbers on what this means for them, what their views are on the various options. And you'll 
start to see the member states comparing notes early next year, probably running up to this March notification. Once that happens, they've got to provide a response, guidelines. Now, they could do that very quickly, but, you know, there's a French election in, in May. They may not be able to do it in a few weeks, in which case you're looking at quite a few months delay, and then you're running near to the German election. So actually, you're seeing potentially quite a big chunk of that two-year Article 50 period potentially hostage to run-of-the-mill politics in the EU 27 and elections there. And technical work will start, but until you've got a new German chancellor and a French president who knows what they want to do, the real political haggling won't start. Okay, last thought from Dan. This is the beginning of a very long process. At the moment, let's bear in mind, Britain is still the fastest growing developed major economy, faster than the EU, faster than the Eurozone, faster than the US. Next year, according to the economists, doesn't look so good. But, you know, manufacturing confidence is up. There are people talking about a Brexit bounce, but this is a long, slow process. And for people who think that we're out of the woods, just bear in mind, you know, there were people in April, May 2003, who thought the Iraq war was going swimmingly. This is a long, long process, and we'll only be able to make the final assessment years hence. That's a chair in comparison. Thank you very much indeed to Dan Dombey here in the studio in London. Thanks also to Alex Barker in Brussels. I'm sure it's the first of many programmes we'll be having about Brexit in the coming years. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.